So we go out to have our break. And it was a steady conversation about all the things that workers converse about, whether they're women or drinking. And, and they used very open language, okay? Yeah. So this kid says, he said, hey, Charlie, so you better be careful. You didn't know, but we have a preacher among us. And he's going to send you to hell. <laughs> Keep talking the way you do. Hell, it can't be any worse than he is. I've been living in hell for the last 30 years. I'm Margaret Pothig, and this is Keeping Dad Alive. My dad is talking about the time he worked on the splice bar line at the Edgar Thompson Works of U.S. Steel in Braddock, Pennsylvania, in the summer of 1950. This season of the podcast is about vocation, and this episode is about what vocation means to people in hellish jobs, and not just hellish jobs, but also mind-numbingly boring jobs and precarious jobs, you know, gig work or work that has no job security or benefits. Back in the 50s and 60s, the Presbyterian Church had a summer program for seminarians that forced them to come face-to-face with what it's like to work in a factory. So when you were in the summer program, where did you work and what did you understand the purpose? I called up the Reverend Bryce Little, a Presbyterian minister and former mission worker who, like my dad, participated in the Ministers in Industry program. The purpose was to give us an understanding of the changing urban industrial society and what it means and how to communicate with factory workers and with people in the industrial scene. So it was kind of a a baptism by fire. By the time Bryce entered the program in 1959, it was based in Chicago under the auspices of McCormick Theological Seminary. After graduating from Princeton Theological Seminary, Bryce entered the Ministers in Industry program and got a job at Winnagle Steel on the south side of Chicago. I was a rust chipper that summer. They were building the steel girders for the bridges on the new freeway going from downtown Chicago to to the O'Hare Airport, which was being built then. Any self-respecting Chicagoan will recognize that Bryce is talking about the Kennedy Expressway. And they would store these out on an all-weather yard, open to the elements of beautiful Chicago weather. By the time they were ready to be sent out to the job, they usually had a lot of rust and stuff on them and worked with a guy from uh, West Virginia, I think. Uh, He would uh, sandblast the girders, and I would work on chipping them, making sure all the rust was off, and then he would spray paint them. I love a good infrastructure story. The job itself was uh, very boring. I think the interest in the job more for me were the people I met there, conversations we had with the fellow workers. To them, salvation was the weekend. It was a whole different idea of work than, than I had thought of. I always thought of work as having meaning, you know. They didn't see it that way. They saw it as a way to uh, provide for themselves. I guess I could say you have meaning there. The Ministers in Industry program was the brainchild of a minister named Marshall Scott, who had been tapped to lead the new Presbyterian Institute of Industrial Relations. And the program was to bring together people to discuss these issues about what's going to happen in our industrial society in the post-World War period. They're looking around for somebody to head it. They found this pastor in Ohio 
named Marshall Scott, as he was developing this program, he said, I'm going to do this in the summertime, and I'm going to get these young seminarians, I'm going to put them in industry, and then we're going to have a seminar, and we're going to discuss the issues of how industrialization has affected the working people. Marshall Scott had the right idea. Reading and talking about the industrial system was just academic. If seminarians were really going to understand their vocation in the midst of a rapidly changing industrial society, they needed to feel personally the hardships these workers faced. And Marshall also wanted seminarians to see where they stood in the broader industrial system. He also got us to meet the people at the corporate heads of of steel. The guy who we talked to put on the board, he had iron, then he had factory, then he had workers equals steel. (laughs) We said, we said, okay, there we are. We're just part of the product. The human being, he was only seen as an instrument, as an instrument for producing the steel. That affected us also, because that's the way, yes, that's the way the industrial system worked, okay? Marshall Scott had grown up on a farm in Ohio, but through his university education, he developed a consciousness of the need for the Presbyterian Church to adapt to the changes that had taken place in society. He was nevertheless an unusual choice to head the Presbyterian Institute of Industrial Relations, but he committed himself to it for the next 30 years. He was actually came out of rural background, but he, he, he transformed along the way. He was really very important. And I was very impressed with him. I thought, this guy is real, you know. He and his wife were always kind of grassroots sort of folks. That attracted me to the Ministers in Industry program. My dad interviewed Marshall Scott in 1982 and wrote an article about him and the history of the Ministers in Industry program for the Journal of Presbyterian History. You can find a link to it in the notes to this podcast and on the website richardpothig.com. Scott, did you know that, that you were named for Marshall Scott? No, I had no idea. Yeah, so <laughs> I didn't know either. I had no idea where your name came from. Neither did I. (laughs) During a family Zoom call this past year, my sister Carrie revealed a lost piece of family lore that my dad and mom named our brother Scott, who was born in 1953, after Marshall Scott, and also because Presbyterians came from Scotland. I hadn't. And I want you to know that I worked in a steel fabricating plant for a couple of months. You did? Scott. Oh, yeah. I have to tell you my experience there, because boy, did it convince me that I did not want to be a blue collar. This is not your work. life. Marshall Scott was the first dean, and in a twist of fate, my dad in 1972 became the last dean of Peer, the Presbyterian Institute of Industrial Relations. For a few years before the steel plants began to shut down, he lined up factory jobs for the seminarians in the Ministers and in Industry program. And one summer, Scott filled an empty slot so I was a very bad press break operator. You had to take these big pieces of metal and this guillotine would come down, bam, and you'd have to push the piece of metal up at the same time so that it didn't bend inappropriately. And I could not do this. And so they eventually took me off this detail because I was wasting too much metal. And so they put me on a detail of making, you know, they had the old, these cigarette containers and I was in charge of bending the little metal thing that fit around the bottom. Of course, me being me, I wanted to be as fast and efficient as I could. And one day, an older worker there came over to me and said, you know, kid, 
When the summer's over, you're going to go back to school. But the rest of us are going to have to stay here, you know, for the rest of our lives. And if you go fast, they'll raise the quota. So just cool it, <laughs> you know, because more or less, this is a luxury for you. And these are people who are missing fingers or whatever, because that guillotine that I'm talking about, they didn't pull their hand out fast enough. And I get home, the only thing I would want to do is sit on the couch and watch television. And I said, yes, I get it. I really get it. You spend all day long on something you have zero interest in, and you're bored to tears, and you could lose a finger doing it, and then you get home, and you don't want to do anything. When I first asked my dad what he meant by the word vocation, he told me about Luther and Calvin and the Protestant Reformation. For these church reformers, the work of the ordinary person was holy. Even the dairymaid had a calling, Luther said. But for the workers at Winnegle Steel, salvation was the weekend. For my brother Scott, salvation was the end of the day when he could zone out in front of the TV. For some of those guys on break at the Braddock Works, it was women and drinking. I don't think this is what Calvin had in mind when he talked about vocatio and the sacredness of the labor of ordinary people. They hadn't seen, in Calvin's day, they hadn't seen what the industrial system did to people. That's what they hadn't seen. Nor had they seen the working conditions of today's warehouse operations. At Amazon, workers complain that their every move in the warehouse is tracked, and that has created an atmosphere of fear of being fired for any amount of TOT, shorthand for time off task. It bothers me that in this day and age, there are still jobs that require people to work like machines. I talked to Bryce Little about oh, this. You know, workers feel that they have to work like robots. You know, people are creative. I think they you know, deserve to be doing work that allows them to use their minds and their hearts. That's very similar to what we talked about in the peer program, how people just had a hard time finding meaning in, in the industrialized society. That, you know, in the agrarian society, you could see things growing and producing, and which gave you a better self-image of what you're doing. I mean, in the Industrial Revolution, that was just ruthless, and, it, and it's ruthless around the world until the workers began organizing and, and demanding better pay and better social benefits, and that, to some degree, humanized the work. Demanding better pay and better working conditions. This, my dad says, is the vocation of people in hellish jobs. What does the word vocation mean for somebody who's stuck in a job like that? What does it mean? Obviously. It's not only an individual meaning, it has a social meaning. It's not only an individual kind of thing, but it's one that fit, fits into the, the social needs of society, okay? And this is where unions came in. And to organize unions requires workers to relate to other workers. The vocation of workers to, to know one another's agonies. I mean, when Charlie says, hell, I've been living in hell, he's expressing what a lot of these other guys felt. And you can understand, if you're on the line for 30 years, and he probably was in the organizing of, of the workers' union because, you know, he, he had all these gripes. 
A light bulb went off in my head about a job I had briefly one summer back when I was in college. I had asked my dad if he had any connections in the publishing business. I should have known he'd find a job for me in a warehouse where used textbooks were refurbished for resale. There were a lot of things I hated about that job, starting with the punch clock that put a red mark on my time card if I was even a second late, and the boredom of doing the same repetitive task for eight hours, waiting desperately for the horn to go off that signaled a break. I cried every day on that job until I got that third red mark on my time card, and then I quit before they could fire me. Thinking back, I realized what was really eating me was that the bosses strictly prohibited workers from talking to one another. They would yell at us to shut up if they heard us even whisper. One day, my supervisor suddenly drove a forklift up to my workstation while I was still sitting at it, picked it up, and carried it to another part of the warehouse floor just because my taskmate and I were chatting. I now wonder if the real intention of the extreme measures the warehouse supervisors took to keep us from talking to one another was to make it harder for us to organize. His gripes finally got home to people. I mean, that's social vocation. is to tell it like it is, okay? Mm -hmm. Tell it like it is and let people then cogitate upon it, think about it, and say to themselves, yeah, it becomes realization then. My dad spent his summers in college working for the International Lady Garment Workers Union, and he might have continued working for a labor union if it weren't for his mother's dying wish that he become a minister. Ultimately, my dad was able to realize his vocation as an organizer within the Presbyterian Church through the Ministers in Industry program and through the Commission on Ecumenical Mission and Relations. Through Comar, Both Bryce Little and my dad took the lessons they had learned from the peer program to Southeast Asia. When we went out as an introduction, we visited your dad and mom in Manila. We went by ship from San Francisco freighter to Manila. We spent some time seeing what your dad and mom were doing. In 1956, my dad and my mom, Eunice, moved to the Philippines. A few years later, Bryce and his wife, Phyllis, moved to Thailand, traveling first through Manila, where they met my parents. He had made a lot of wonderful contacts with the Philippine labor movement. But the difference there in Thailand is trade unions were illegal. Your dad was working with labor unions in the Philippines, but we couldn't do that in Thailand. So what I decided is that I should try to do peer model in Thailand. We got students from the Chinese Bible School in Bangkok, and then the Protestant Seminary in Chiang Mai. We had seven students in that first class, and we had them work in factories, and then we talked about their experiences in the evening, very similar to beer. So it got them into really meaningful conversations with the other factory workers. We want labor organizing, so we developed workers' scholarships groups. They would have meetings in the churches, bring these factory workers together that they met in the factories. In a place where trade unions are illegal, any sort of coming together of the workers is deeply appreciated and helpful to them. 
Eventually, several hundred people attended these worker fellowship groups, and according to Bryce, only about 10% of the people who came were Christian. And the rest were people drawn to the social service dimension and the human identity that they felt through the expression of these groups. And some of the factory workers became the leaders of these groups. And they bring in resources to put together services that they need, they identify they need, not somebody else does it for them. A clinic, a medical clinic, educational work with the children, uh, things like that that just is not available to many of them where they're living in the worker slums. And doing it under the umbrella of the church in Thailand kept the government from cracking down on us as being a trade union. And this is what my dad is trying to tell me, too, that the vocation of people working in difficult conditions is to take on the problems of the workers around them as well as their own, because they're all in the same boat, my dad says. It's not always systemic labor union stuff like your dad was interested in and doing well in the Philippines, but it it was basically to find the gospel expressing itself through love and care and outward social empathy and programs that help the people where they're at. Bryce's story about bringing together workers in a country where unions are illegal makes me think about the challenges here in the United States of organizing workers who are isolated from one another, such as gig workers who work independently Uber or Lyft drivers are the most talked about, or because they're jumping from one crummy part-time job to another, or because they're virtually invisible doing domestic work. I've taken a personal interest in the people who work as caregivers for older adults. If there's any group of workers we in our aging society ought to be concerned about, it's this one. I challenged my dad to explain what vocation, in the sense of fighting for justice, looks like for these extremely isolated and vulnerable workers. I'm going back to Calvin now. Yeah, go back to Calvin. Calvin says, magistrates get appointed or they, they find themselves in positions in government where they're supposed to be caring for the well-being of the people. And he says, if they're not doing that, then you got to make sure that they either do or they get out. This is where you build democracy. I mean, we're not talking just about vocation in the sense of unions. We're talking about how do you get changes in government that are really going to work for people. The government failed domestic workers, along with agricultural workers, in 1935 when it passed the Fair Labor Standards Act, establishing the minimum wage and overtime pay, because it excluded domestic and agricultural workers. It's long past time to fix that, But domestic workers need workplace protections that go far deeper. There's an organization I've been supporting called the National Domestic Workers Alliance. I read a great article in the New York Times recently that describes the NDWA as trying to create a new kind of collective bargaining. It begins with getting states or cities, better yet, the U.S. Congress, to pass the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights. To learn more about this organization and its work, I've put several links in the notes to this podcast, a link to the New York Times article and also to the website, domesticworkers.org. 
and to a very well done history of domestic work and worker organizing that includes an interactive timeline. It was created by activist scholars in collaboration with the NDWA. One of my favorite parts of the Times story is how Ai Jin Poo, the leader of today's domestic workers' rights movement, started organizing nannies by seeking them out in playgrounds and in the children's section of Barnes & Noble bookstores. And it happens in all kinds of ways, Margaret. It happens in all kinds of ways. And I don't know how it's going to happen today, but I, we have a long history of the way it happens. And think of the lives devoted to that and their vocation at Seneca Falls with women who wanted to get women's rights to vote. And it took them all the way to 1919 to get that done. I mean, so all of these things are, are on a level of what can you get done at the time and how do you do it? See, that Chicago experience with the peer program changed me, changed me drastically. So the peer program, most people don't have that experience, and having that experience is really illuminating. I didn't know what caregiving was like until I helped care for my mother. I not only found out how demanding caregiving is, but also how difficult it is to hire caregivers. I can't help thinking, if only there was a program for, let's call them magistrates, that would force them to experience what it's like to be a domestic worker for just one summer. The music in this podcast is Last Light by Zylo Zico.